Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, book 5, chapter 7. Somehow, last night I managed to post the uh, discussion prompts onto the A Year of War and Peace subreddit. I don't know how I messed that up, but um, I did. (laughs) So thanks, uh, Techrific, for linking up to the correct subreddit. T, Thomas, is getting married and rich. And do we know much about this bride-to-be? TA131901 says, We first meet Gerda in Chapter 2.7 at the boarding school where she's shown to be a slightly eccentric but highly elegant girl. Other girls think playing the violin is silly. I've read that the violin at the time was considered a masculine instrument not really appropriate for women unlike piano. Hmm, I did not know that. Interesting. Gwenardel says, I'm so happy we get to see Gerda again. Tony even made a joke about wanting her to marry one of her brothers so she didn't have to go back to Amsterdam. Techrific says, what do we think of Thomas? I found it interesting that he wasn't sure if he wanted to marry Gerda because of the substantial dowry, or because he was smitten by her. At least it's honest, but I wonder what Gerda has to say about it, if she knew. Is adoration, love. I think it's pretty normal for that time period, for the the dowry to be part of the consideration of the marriage. That's what I've uh, learned through all my years of reading classic novels. So I don't know if she would be too upset by that. Swim said the mama fishy said it just wouldn't be Thomas if he wasn't as dazzled by the money as with the woman, given he is a chip off the old block for senior and junior. I wonder what his mother thought about Thomas's honesty since Junior married her at least partly for her money. I thought he used used the term adore simply as hyper, hyper hyperbole. Potentially. Here we go, an interesting, <clears throat> excuse me, development. A marriage is happening. Let's jump into chapter 8. It goes like this. That year, there was indeed a merry mis- midsummer holiday in the Buddenbrook home. At the end of the July, Thomas returned to Ming Street and visited his family at the shore several times, like the other businessmen in the town. Christian had allo- allotted full holidays unto himself as he complained of an indefinite ache in his left leg. Dr. Grabauer did not seem to treat it successfully, and Christian thought of it so much the more. It's not a pain. One can't call it a pain, he expatiated, rubbing his hand up and down his leg, wrinkling his big nose and letting his eyes roam about. It's a sort of ache, a continuous slight uneasy ache in the whole leg and on the left side and side where the heart is. Strange. I find it strange. What do you think about it, Tom? Well, well, said Tom, you can have a rest and the sea baths. So Christian went down to the shore to tell stories to his fellow guests and the beach resounded with their laughter. Or he played roulette with Peter Dolman, Uncle Justice Dr. Gisek and other Hamburg high flyers. Consul Puddenbrook went with Tony, as always, when they were in Travamundi to see the old Schwarzkopf on the front. Good day, Madame Grunlich, said the pilot captain, and spoke low German out of pure good feeling. Well, well, what a long time ago that was. And Morton, he's a doctor in Breslau, and has all the practice in the town, the rascal. Frau Schwarzkopf ran off and made coffee, and they supped in the green veranda, and they used, as they used to, only all of them were a good ten years older, and Morton and little Meta were not there, she having married the magistrate of Hafkrug, and the captain already white-haired and rather deaf had retired from his office and Madame Grunlich was not a goose any more, which did not prevent her from eating a great many slices of bread and honey, for, as she said, honey is a pure nature product, one knows what one is getting. 
At the beginning of August, the Buddenbrooks, like most of the other families, returned to town, and then came the great moment when almost at the same time, Pastor Tiberius from Prussia and the Arnoldsons from Holland arrived for a long visit in Meng Street. It was a very pretty scene when the consul led his bride for the first time into the landscape room and took her to his mother, who received her with outstretched arms. Gerda had grown tall and splendid. She walked with a free and gracious bearing with her heavy, dark red hair, her close-set brown eyes with the blue shadows around them, her large, gleaming teeth which showed when she smiled, her straight, strong nose and nobly formed mouth. This maiden of seven and twenty years had a strange, aristocratic, haunting beauty. Her face was white and a little haughty, but she bowed her head, as the Frau Consul, with gentle feeling, took it between her hands and kissed the pure, snowy forehead. Yes, you are welcome to our house and to our family, you dear, beautiful, blessed creature, she said. You will make him happy. Do I not see already how happy you make him? And she drew Thomas forward with her other arm to kiss him also. Never, except perhaps in grandfather's time, was there more gay society in the great house which accommodated its guests with ease. Pastor Tiberius had modestly chosen a bedchamber in the back building next to a billiard room, but the rest divided the unoccupied space on the ground floor next the hall and in the first story. Gerda, her Arnoldson, a quick, clever man at the end of the fifties, with a pointed grey beard and a pleasant, impetuous city in every motion, his oldest daughter, an ailing-looking woman, and his son-in-law, the elegant man of the world, who was turned over to Christian for entertainment in the town and at the club. Antony was overjoyed that Severt Tiberius was the only parson in the house. The betrothal of her adored brother rejoiced her heart. Aside from Gerda's being her friend, the party was a brilliant one, gilding the family name and the firm with such new glory and the 300,000 mark dowry and the thought of what the town, and particularly the Hogginstroms, would say to it, put her in a state of prolonged and delightful enchantment. Three times daily, at least, she passionately embraced her future sister-in-law, Oh, Gerda, she cried, I love you. You know I always did love you. I know you can't stand me. You used to hate me, but... Why, Tony, said Fraulein Arnoldson, how could I have hated you? Did you ever do anything to me? For some reason, however, probably out of mere wantonness and love of talking, Tony asserted stoutly that Gerda had always hated her, while she, on her side, had always returned the hate with love. She took Thomas aside and told him, Have you done very well, Tom? Oh, heavens, how well you have done. If father could only see this, it is just dreadful that he cannot. Yes, this wipes out a lot of things, not least the affair with that person whose name I do not even like to speak. Which put it into her head to take Gerda into an empty room and tell her with awful, awful detail the story of her married life with Benedict Grunlich. Then they talked for hours about boarding school days and the bedtime gossip of Arnold Gard von Schilling in Mecklenburg and Eva Ewers in Munich. Tony paid little or no attention to Severt Tiberius and his betrothed, which troubled them not at all. The lovers sat quietly together hand in hand and spoke gently and earnestly of the beautiful future before them. As the year of mourning was not quite over, the two betrothals were celebrated only in the family, but Gerda quickly became a celebrity in the town. Her person formed the chief subject of conversation of, on the bourse, at the club, at the theatre, in society. Tip-top, said the gallants, and clucked their tongues, for that was the latest Hamburg slang for a superior article, whether a brand of claret, claret, a cigar, or a deal. But among the solid, respectable citizens there was much head-shaking, something queer about her, they said, her hair, her face, the way she dresses, a little too unusual. Sorensen expressed it, she has a certain something about her. 
he made a face as if he wore on the boss and somebody had made him a doubtful proposition but it was all just like Council Buttonbrook, a little pretentious, not like his forebears. Everybody knew, not least Benthian the draper, that he ordered his clothes from Hamburg, not only the fine new fashion materials for his suits, and he had a great many of them, cloaks, coats, waistcoats and trousers, but his hats and cravats and linen as well. He changed his shirt every day, sometimes twice a day, and perfumed his handkerchief and his moustache, which he wore, cut like Napoleon III. All this was not for the sake of the firm, of course. The house of Johann Barenbrook did not need the sort of things, but to gratify his own personal taste for the superfine and aristocratic, or whatever you might call it, and then the quotations from Heen and other poets, which he dropped sometimes in the most practical connections in business or civic matters. And now, his bride, well, Consul Barenbrook himself, had a certain something about him. All this, of course, with the greatest respect for the family, was highly esteemed, the firm very, very good, and the head of it, an able and charming man who loved his city and would still serve her well. It was a really devilishly fine match for him. There was talk of a hundred thousand thaler down, but of course, among the ladies, there were some who found Gerda silly, which, it will be recalled, was a very severe judgment. But the man who gazed with furious ador at Thomas Buddenbrook's bride, the first time he saw her on the street, was Gosh the Broker. Ah, he said in the club, or the ship's company, lifting his glass and screwing up his face absurdly. What a woman! Hurrah and Aphrodite, Bruhilda and Melusine all in one. Oh, how wonderful life is, he would add. And not one of the citizens who sat about with their beer on the hard wooden benches of the old guild house under the models of sailing vessels and big stuffed fish hanging down from the ceiling had the least idea what the advent of Gerda Arnoldson meant in the yearning life of Gosh the Broker. The little company in Mengstreet not committed, as we have seen, to large entertainments, had the more leisure for intimacy with each other. Severt Tiberius, with Clara's hand in his, talked about his parents, his childhood, and his future plans. The Arnoldsons told of their people who came from Dresden, only one branch of them having been transplanted to Holland. Madame Gwilnich asked her brother for the key of the secretary in the landscape room and brought out the portfolio with the family papers in which Thomas had already entered the new events. She proudly related the Buddenbrook history from the Rostock tailor on and when she read out the old festival verses, Industry and Beauty Chase. We see we linked in a marriage band Venus and Diomene and cunning Vulcan's busy hand. She looked at Tom and Gerda and let her tongue play over her lips. Regard for historical veracity also caused her to narrate events connected with a certain person whose name she did not like to mention. On Thursday at four o'clock the usual guests came. Uncle Justus brought his feeble wife, with whom he lived an unhappy existence. The wretched mother continued to scrape together money out of the housekeeping to send to the degenerate and disinherited Jacob in America, while she and her husband subsided, subsisted on almost nothing but porridge. The Buttonbrook ladies from Broad Street all came, and their love of truth compelled them to say, as usual, that Erica Grunlich was not growing well, and that she looked more than ever like her wretched father. Also, that the consul's bride wore a rather conspicuous coiffure, and Sesame Weishbrot came too, and standing on her tiptoes kissed Gerda, with her little explosive kiss on the forehead, and said with emotion, Be happy, my dear child. 
At table, Herr Arnoldson gave one of his witty and fanciful toasts in honour of the two bridal parties. While the rest drank their coffee, he played the violin like a gypsy, passionately, with abandonment and with what dexterity. Gerda fetched her Stradivarius and accompanied him in the passages with her sweet cantilena. They performed magnificent duets at the little organ in the landscape room where once the consul's grandfather had played his simple melodies on the flute. Sublime, said Tony, lolling back in her easy chair. Oh, heavens, how sublime that is. And she rolled up her eyes to the ceiling to express her emotion. You know how it is in life, she went on weightily. Not everybody is given such a gift. Heaven has unfortunately denied it to me, though I used to pray for it at night. I'm a goose, a silly creature, you know, Gerda. I am the elder and have learned to know life. Let me tell you, you ought to thank your creator every day on your knees for being such a gifted creature. Oh, please, said Gerda, with a laugh, showing her beautiful, large white teeth. Later they all ate wine jelly and discussed their plans for the near future. At the end of the month, or the beginning of September, it was decided Sever Tiberius and the Arnoldsons would go home. Then directly after Christmas, Clara's wedding would be celebrated with due solemnity in the Great Hall. The Frau Consul's health permitting would attend Tom's wedding in Amsterdam, but it must be put off until the beginning of the year that there might be a little pause for rest between. It was no use for Thomas to protest. Please, said the Frau Consul, and laid her hand on his sleeve. Severt should have the precedence, I think. The pastor and his bride had decided against a wedding journey. Gerda and Thomas, however, were to take a trip to northern Italy as far as Florence and be gone about two months. In the meantime, Tony, with the help of the upholsterer Jacobs in Fish Street, was to make ready the chambering, sorry, the charming little house in Broad Street, the property of the bachelor who had moved to Hamburg. The consul was already arranging for its purchase. Oh, Tony would furnish it to the Queen's taste. It will be perfect, she said. They were all sure it would. Christian looked on while the two bridal pairs held hands and listened to the talks about weddings and trousseau and bridal journeys. His nose looked bigger and his legs more crooked than ever. He felt an indefinite sort of pain in the left one and stared solemnly at them all out of his little round deep-set eyes. Finally, in the accents of Marcellus Stengel, he said to his cousin Clothilde, who sat elderly, dried up, silent and hungry at the table among the happy throng, Well, Tilda, let us get married too. I mean, of course, each one for himself. All right, there we go. Chapter done. Thank you for listening. See you tomorrow.